0: Of the all over the house. The Hello, everyone, and welcome to Deviants, a true crime podcast. Uh, my name is Devin, and today's case is a huge bummer. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Um, We're going to be talking about what is, in my opinion, one of the most confusing, convoluted, and admittedly very interesting cases in modern American history, and that is the case of the murder of John JonBenet Ramsey. It's been just over 23 years since these events took place, and we are no closer to answers now than we were back then. Um, And just a heads up, we are going to be talking about the death and murder of children and there are some brief mentions of, like, sexual abuse and sexual assault. So just a heads up for anyone who might be affected by those topics. So without further ado, let's just get into it. So first of all, I think it's important to have some context about who the Ramseys were before the death of John Bonet so you can get a full picture of the whole situation. So, let's begin with John JonBenet's father, John Ramsey. So, John Ramsey was born in Lincoln, Nebraska to Mary Jane and James Ramsey and attended Okemos, I think that's how you say it, high school in Michigan. Um, He graduated from Michigan State University in 1966 with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and then got a master's degree in business administration from the same school in 1971. He joined the Navy in 1966 and served as a Civil Engineer Corps officer in the Philippines for three years, um, and then in a reserve unit in Atlanta, Georgia, for another eight years. Um, In 1989, Ramsey formed the Advanced Product Group, which is one of the three companies that merged to become Access Graphics. Um, He became president and CEO of Access Graphics, which was a, quote, software company and was later bought by Lockheed Martin, which, if you don't know, is a weapons manufacturer company, basically (laughs) like there. I'm you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's one of the biggest companies that provides all of the weapons when we go to war and stuff like that. Um, And then in 1996, Access Graphics grossed over $1 billion, and Ramsey was named Entrepreneur of the Year by Boulder Chamber of Commerce. Um, And his net worth was reported at $6.4 million as of May 1st, 1996. So John married a woman named Lucinda Pash in 1966, and they had three children together, Elizabeth, Melinda, and John. But the couple divorced in 1978 and his oldest daughter Elizabeth and her boyfriend Matthew were tragically killed in a car accident in 1992. And she was 22 at the time of her death, which is really sad. Um, and so John has two dead daughters under his belt now, but... So Ramsey married his second wife Patricia Pa Poe? I'm not really sure how to pronounce her last name, um, aka Patsy, which is what I'll be calling her for the rest of the episode. Um, in 1980 and they had two children, Burke and John Bennet. So as you can see, John has had a pretty successful life financially. Um, not so much relationship wise because as of like 2011 he's on his third wife, but we'll get into that later. Um, so let's move on to Patsy Ramsey, the mother, shall we? So Patsy was born on December 29th, 1956, which is the day after my birthday, but like 40 years before in Gilbert, West Virginia to Nidra and Donald Poe, that's just how I'm going to pronounce it. Uh she graduated from Parkersburg High School in 1975 and attended West Virginia University where she belonged to the Alpha Xi Delta sorority. Listen, I don't know anything about sororities, so please don't roast me for not knowing what that is. Um and from which she graduated with a bachelor's in journalism in 1978. Uh, Patsy also competed in beauty pageants pretty much her entire life up until she got married. She actually won the Miss West Virginia Beauty title in 1977, and her sister Pamela won the Miss South Charleston title at age 24 in 1980. So it was obviously a family thing to compete in these pageants, as you can see. Um, Patsy was 23 when she married John on uh, November 5th, 1980, uh, their son Burke was born January 27th, 1987, and she gave birth to their second child, John Binet, on August 6th, 1990, in Atlanta. Um, the family moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1991 for John's business, Access Graphics, and Boulder, Colorado is where the story of John Binet begins and also tragically ends, unfortunately. Starting from when their daughter was really young, Patsy entered Bonnet in children's beauty contests, and she actually won Little Miss Colorado, M- Little Miss Charlevoix, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, <laughs> say that five times fast, America's Royal Miss, and National Tiny Miss Beauty, and the local Little Miss Christmas beauty pageant all by the age of six. Um, And I just want to take a moment to say that I personally find child beauty pageants fucking disgusting. You can disagree and leave me a bad review on iTunes for this, but 99% of the time, the little girls are being forced to participate in these shows by their parents, who are usually living vicariously through their child. It's a multi-million dollar industry where young girls compete to win things like money, trophies, and even like modeling contracts. It is genuinely vile to me. Shows like Toddlers and Tiaras really drive that point home for me. Like these girls have their hair dyed, they're given fake teeth sometimes, they're slathered in pounds of makeup, and sometimes even put on like restrictive diets, all to seem more beautiful and sexually appealing than the girl next to them. It's disgusting. And they're they're children, they're children, and any parent who puts their child on stage to have their bodies picked apart by grown adults is causing irreparable and lasting damage to their child's mind and self-esteem. Like statistically, so many of these girls grow up to have depression, eating disorders and drug addiction even in puberty and oftentimes for the rest of their lives. Not to mention these shows are like a pedophile's wet dream. You're opening your child up to being sexualized and victimized by these sick people who want to do them harm. And it's so sad and gross and it breaks my heart. Um, and there are actually a few reported accounts that show Bonnet didn't really enjoy doing pageants. Apparently a family friend uh, complimented JonBenet on all of her trophies and JonBenet told her, they're not really mine. They're more like my mom's trophies. Which is like a really heavy sentence for a six-year-old to be saying like that's really that holds a lot of weight again we're just going off of like word of mouth so maybe that didn't actually happen that was just something that came out after she died to like make it seem really dramatic and stuff but like if she did say that that's like a really heavy statement for a six-year-old to make JonBenet's grandmother also said in an interview that if JonBenet had expressed that she didn't want to participate in the pageants anymore that she wouldn't have a choice and they would have made her do it anyway so that's awesome (laughs) now the Ramses were rich, like filthy fucking rich. Like I said before, John's company made over a billion dollars the same year that John Bonet died, and his net worth was estimated to be over six million that year as well. Uh, their Colorado house was 7,000 square feet. And when they bought it in 1991, it was worth $500,000. And it's worth about $2 million in the present day. Um, and they also had a huge vacation home in Michigan as well. Um, they had two private planes, a yacht, and a, ma- a maid named Linda Hoffman Pugh, who actually plays an important role later on. Um, my point is that these people were stupid rich and like dangerously powerful. Now, let's just fast forward to December of 1996. On December 20th, Access Graphics had like a huge party to celebrate their $1 billion mark and had more than 300 employees at the Hotel, hotel Boulderado. Um, this was a very public party, and the next day, an article was written about Access Graphics reaching a billion dollars. Um, again, this is very public, and people knew that John John Ramsey was the CEO. So, when we get into the theories on what happened to John Bonet in the next episode, we'll talk about about why that's important. Um, on the twenty third of December, the Ramseys hosted a Christmas party at their home, with approximately thirty guests attending, including former journalism professor Bill McReynolds playing Santa Claus. Um, Again, Bill comes into play in the conspiracies later on Um, that same night on the 23rd at 647 PM, someone at the Ramsey's party placed a 911 call. The caller hung up without saying anything. And when the dispatcher called back, it just went to the answering machine. An officer showed up to their house shortly after, but left after about 15 minutes after being assured that there wasn't actually an emergency. Apparently on December 24th, John Bonet was playing at her friend Megan's house and allegedly told Megan's mother about a secret visit from Santa. Keep that in mind. On Christmas day, the Ramseys attended a Christmas party at Fleet and Priscilla White's house who were family friends at around 6 p.m. And like Fleet White is such like an old money name. You know, like no one names their kid Fleet unless they have over a billion dollars in their bank account. Um, but apparently, John Bennett fell asleep on the ride home from the party later that night at around like nine p.m. Uh, John put John Bennett to bed in her room upstairs. Uh, Burke, the nine-year-old son, went to bed as well shortly after, and John and Patsy went to bed around ten p.m. Apparently, around, like, 2 a.m. that night, the Ramseys' neighbor, Melody Shanton, heard a scream coming from the Ramseys' house, but the Ramseys never reported hearing a scream or anything like that. They just slept through the night. Also, she didn't—the neighbor didn't call the cops when she heard the scream, which, like, you'd think she would since they live in, like, a really upscale neighborhood that they would, like, immediately call the cops for any kind of noise whatsoever, but she just didn't call the police. So Patsy and John Ramsey woke up the next morning on December 26th at around 530 a.m. And they started getting ready for a trip they were going to take to Michigan for a family vacation. Um, Patsy reportedly got up, took a shower, put the same clothes on that she'd wore the day before, which is strange, uh, touched up her makeup and headed downstairs to the kitchen. Um, I should mention that this house has three floors, uh, four if you count the basement, and the master bedroom where the parents slept was on the third floor above Burke's room, which was on the second floor, and John Bennet's bedroom was on the second floor on the other side of the house from the other bedrooms. It was when Patsy was walking downstairs that she noticed a three-page note that had been left at the bottom of the staircase leading into the kitchen. She picked it up, and this is what it said.
1: Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. 100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining 18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, You will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8am and 10am tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied remains for a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you to not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as the police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned. We are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory, S-B-T-C.
0: Now, let's analyze this note for a second. First of all, it's obviously a ransom note. You might notice that it's also very long, about three pages, which is very unusual for a ransom note, especially considering it was written with a pen and a pad of paper that belonged to the Ramses, meaning it had to have been written on site, which is basically unheard of as well. Most ransom notes are written beforehand because obviously if you're breaking into someone's house to kidnap someone, you'd want to get out as quickly as possible um, so as to not risk being caught, Right. I don't know. Um, In the two part documentary that came out a few years ago about this case called The Case of John JonBenet Ramsey, which is a great documentary. I do recommend it. um, They recreated how long it would take to write the note. And they concluded that it would take about 21 minutes without stopping. Um, That doesn't that doesn't take into account the fact that someone had to come up with what they were writing on the spot and likely weren't writing like continuously. Um, There was also a partial draft found in the kitchen along with the note, meaning the note was started once and then they, like, tossed that one and started it again, adding even more time to writing this note. Um, Also, the pen and pad of paper were put back in the spot where they were found, which is super weird and doesn't make any sense. If you're kidnapping a little girl in her home while her parents are sleeping upstairs, why would you not only take the time to restart your ransom note that, like I said, would have usually already been prepared, but then also put the pen and pad of paper back where they belong. It just feels like kidnappers who are supposed to be in a rush wouldn't do something like that or, like, even think to do that. They also brought in a handwriting expert to analyze the ransom note in that same documentary I was talking about before, and he found some interesting details. Um, First, he noticed that some of the more simple words were misspelled, like business and possessions. But then later in the note, the author uses more advanced words and phrases like, and hence, uh, deviation, and attache, all of which are spelled correctly, even including the accent over the E in attache. This leads one to believe that the misspellings at the beginning of the note were intentional to make the authors seem either less educated than they actually are, or to reinforce the claim that the kidnappers were from a foreign faction. So presumably English, English wouldn't be their first language. So why would they know how to spell those more advanced words but then misspell the simpler words you know what i mean there are several movie references found in the ransom note for example in the movie dirty harry uh clint eastwood's character is looking for a man who kidnapped a little girl and when talking to the kidnapper over the phone several times the kidnapper tells clint eastwood's character that if he does not follow his orders quote the girl dies as opposed to saying the girl will die in the movie the girl was already dead so this kind of leads one to believe that the author of the note knew John Benet was already dead. Not to mention, why would someone from a foreign faction take the time to make a reference to an American movie with the same premise as the crime they're committing, especially if they want the Ramsays to believe that John Benet is still alive? That doesn't make any sense. Um, Something that is interesting, though, is that the Ramseys' house was full of movie posters. So it is possible that if the kidnappers were going through the house and looking around, they may have noticed, like, all the movie posters and decided to make a reference to one in the ransom note. But that's pretty unlikely and still doesn't really make any sense. Um, It is way more likely that someone who either knew the Ramseys or was a Ramsey themselves Added that in to try and make the note more believable. So to further explore the idea that the author knew that John Bonet was already dead, there are three times when the writer uses uh, an exclamation point at the beginning after listen carefully, at the end, after It is Up to You Now, John, and in closing after Victory. But when talking about killing John Bonet, the author doesn't use any exclamation points. Four times the author wrote, She dies. We would expect this to be a point of emphasis, but there wasn't any. Um, we know that the author likes to use exclamation points. They've used it several times throughout the note, but they chose not to use any when talking about killing John Bonnet. Like I said, this also indicates that John Bonnet was already dead when the note was written, and the author knew that. Now, the note is addressed to Mr. Ramsey, but towards the end of the note, Mr. Ramsey turns into John. And the author refers to J- Mr. Ramsey as John three times throughout the note. And presumably, if this was like a foreign faction, they would use the term Mr. Ramsey, because like calling him by his first name is like weirdly personal for an unknown kidnapper. Like the writer felt comfortable calling him John. So this kind of indicates that the writer knows John Ramsey in some way. Another huge point in this note is the ransom amount, which is $118,000. That is a very specific number and also doesn't make any sense, considering it was well known that John Ramsey was a multimillionaire. And if these people wanted money and were going through all this trouble to get it, why would they ask for a relatively low and very specific number? Well, 118000 was almost the exact amount that John Ramsey had received as a Christmas bonus that year. And even though it was well known that John was rich, only people... The only people who would have realistically known how much John made as a Christmas bonus that year are John, Patsy, or I guess the person who, like, handles the paychecks and bonuses at John's company. Unless, of course, the kidnappers were rummaging through the Ramseys' home looking for a pay stub to see how much money John made to use for reference. But like I said, it was well known and very obvious that John was a multimillionaire. I mean, these kidnappers allegedly walked into this, multi, like, this huge mansion... That obviously costed a ton of money. Like, it's easy to figure out that John had a lot of money if you didn't know that before. Also, why would they waste time searching for a pay stub? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't... It doesn't make any sense. None of this really adds up. Now, the people who analyzed this note were able to determine that the person who wrote the note was likely a native English-speaking woman who is likely over 30, um based on the length and, like, the maternalistic language, like, quote, listen carefully and I advise you to be arrested, the people who analyzed the note said that when language like that is used in, like, any kind of, like, ransom note, it's usually written by a woman almost every single time. Um, The note also tells John Ramsey to use that, quote, good southern common sense of his, but John wasn't southern. Like I mentioned before, he was from Michigan, Patsy was, however, from West Virginia, so it's possible that that was added to cause confusion and make it look like the author of the note n- like knew a lot about the family, but not quite enough to be totally accurate, especially if it was written by a member of a foreign faction who maybe thought that Colorado was considered Southern. But the phrase uh, good Southern common sense seems like something that someone who wasn't American wouldn't really understand. They also had someone take a look at the handwriting in the note and matched it pretty closely to Patsy Ramsey's handwriting. Um, But to be fair, it was written with a really thick pen that made it difficult to see the small, like, personal details of the handwriting. Um, It's also speculated that whoever wrote the note may have forged Patsy's handwriting in order to cause misdirection, but like that seems like a little much so no one knows what the sbtc at the end of the note means but the most widely accepted theory is that it stands for saved by the cross because the ramses were known to be devout christians Um, so whether the note was written by an intruder or one of the ramses it would technically make sense that either of them would have included that uh there are whole websites that dissect the note even further if you're interested but those are like the major points I wanted to point out before we move on so after Patsy read the note she claims to have searched the house for John Bonet before calling the police just before 6 a.m so let's listen to that phone call now shall we 911 emergency police, police. what's going on there ma'am? Explain to me what's going on, okay? There, yeah, we have a, left. a note left in our daughter's gone. A note was left in your daughter's room. Yeah. gone? How old is your daughter? Six years old. She's blonde. Six years old. How long ago was this? I don't know. I just found the note. Oh my God! Is it the same checker? What? Is it the same checker? What? I don't know. There's a, there's a ransom note here. It's a ransom note. It says F B T C. Your name. Are you Nancy I'm the lover. Okay. Oh my God! Please. I'm, okay, I'm going to knock the over, Okay. Please. Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. Please, we just got out and she's not here. Oh my God, please. Okay. well this somebody? I am, honey. Let's talk about that phone call, shall we? In the same documentary in which they analyzed the ransom note, they also analyzed this call, specifically the language that Patsy used and the distorted audio you can hear at the end of the call when Patsy thought she'd hung up but hadn't yet. Um, So when analyzing 911 calls, the two things you look at are the order of information given by the caller and the linguistic disposition, which means what does the person think of the person in need of help? So, the first thing out of the caller's mouth is usually their number one priority. And the first thing that Patsy says is that she needs the police and cuts the operator off to give her her address. It took Patsy 15 seconds of being on this 911 call for her to even mention her daughter was the person who was kidnapped. Why wouldn't she say that immediately? You know, like, why did she take so long to tell the operator that her six-year-old daughter was the one who was kidnapped? As for the language that Patsy used, it's pretty strange. Um, the documentary pointed out the fact that Patsy used the words, we have a kidnapping, which is strange because as her mother, you'd think that the first thing out of her mouth would be, my daughter has been kidnapped, not we have a kidnapping. The use of the word we in the situation is weird because historically, most parents use the word my when calling the police because their child was missing. Her response is also vague and lacks any kind of specifics, which is usually an indication of deception. Um, And if someone is telling a lie, they'll usually be as vague and nondescriptive as possible and will sometimes soften it by saying something that isn't a direct lie. So in this case, if Patsy knew JonBenet was already dead, saying my daughter has been kidnapped would technically be a direct lie. But saying we have a kidnapping would be a lie that lacks specific information, so it feels like less of a lie. It's very subtle, but it's also a huge point of interest when researching this case. So Patsy goes on to answer the question, what's your name, with Patsy Ramsey, I'm the mother. Notice how she used the impersonal pronoun the when it would make more sense as her mother to say I'm her mother. This indicates a level of like distance from the person and the situation as a whole. Uh, this is the second time she uses distancing language in this phone call about her daughter being missing. She also responds to the operator's question, uh, does it say who took her, with... No, I don't know. There's a ransom note here. But the ransom note does say who took her in the first few lines a small foreign faction. Why would she say that she doesn't know if she does? Patsy also mentions that John Bonet is blonde when the operator asks how old John Bonet is. Why would that information be important in this moment? I'm not really sure. And the most concerning part of this phone call to me is the fact that Patsy hung up the phone. When you call 911, The operator on the call is sometimes quite literally your lifeline. In an emergency situation, you do not hang up until the police are there. The operator usually even advises you not to hang up until the police get there, so they can keep up with you if anything changes. Listen to any famous 911 call of emergency situations, and the person calling always stays on the line until the police get there. For example, when a man broke into the actress Sandra Bullock's house, She locked herself in her room, called 911, 911, and stayed on the line until the police literally had the man in handcuffs. It's very unusual to just hang up in a situation like this, especially when your child is missing. And she seemed so desperate for the operator to send the police as quickly as possible, so why wouldn't she stay on the line until the police got there so she knew that they were coming, you know? Very strange. Now, let's get into the inaudible sounds at the end of the call after Patsy thought she'd hung up but hadn't yet. Um, The operator who answered the emergency call actually came out like 20 years later and made an appearance in the documentary I was referencing before. Uh, And she said that when she was on the phone with Patsy, she could immediately tell that something was off. It just didn't seem right, like there was something suspicious about it. She noted that even though Patsy seemed very panicked and out of breath during the call that that immediately went away after Patsy thought she'd hung up the phone. Um, An audio engineer also took the audio at the very end of the call and, like, enhanced it and reduced the white noise so you can kind of make out what sounds like three people talking. So let me play that for you now. Patsy? (laughs) If you listen closely, you can hear what sounds like an adult male voice saying, we're not speaking to you. And then an adult female voice saying something like, what did you do? Help me, Jesus. And a smaller child's voice saying something like, what did you find? I'll play it for you again now so you can hear what I'm talking about. Happy. So let's move on now to what happened after the phone call. So immediately after calling the police, Patsy and John called up their friends, Fleet and Priscilla White, and John and Barbara Fernie, which calling the police and then also calling their friends blatantly go against the notes instructions. But to be fair, I definitely would have called the police. I don't know if I would have called all my friends to come over, though. Um, But then at 9.59 a.m. shortly after the 911 call, officers Carl Veach and Rick French showed up to the Ramsey household. Uh, Followed shortly by Detective Linda Arndt Um, and as soon as the officers arrived they began searching the house. So they started in the basement and one of the officers actually walked up to a closed door that was in the basement and instead of opening it just walked away which is super weird in my opinion like you're looking for a missing child. You know, you would check every inch of the home before you just kind of moved on and, like, accepted that they were actually kidnapped, you know? So Fleet and Priscilla White arrived at the Ramsey house a little after 6 a.m., and Fleet took, a, took it upon himself to start searching the house as well. Um, and can we just talk about, for a second, how the cops just kind of fucked this up from the beginning? Like, why were they letting random people come in and out of the house, walk all around the house and search it, getting their DNA and fingerprints and all the door handles, the floors, like, in places where there could possibly be evidence? Like, they didn't tape off any parts of the house upon arrival, not even where the note was found. They didn't tape off John JonBenet's bedroom until, like, 10.30 a.m., almost five hours after they arrived. They just let people trample all over any possible evidence in the house, which doesn't make any sense. But... Anyway, Fleet searched the basement, including the room that the officer didn't open, but said he saw nothing. He also searched the room that's referred to as the train room due to there being like a model train with train tracks set up on a table in it um, and didn't find anything either. So while the police are searching the house, uh, more and more people are showing up to the scene, including the Reverend from the Ramsey's church and two women who were victims advocates who were called onto the scene by the police to like help help the Ramsey's deal with the situation. Um, Burke was woken up around 7 a.m. and he was taken by Fleet White and John Fernie along with Fernie's kids to Fleet's house. John decided he was going to search the house as well. So he went down to the basement where he noticed that the window that had been broken before, like months before, was now open and that it had a suitcase underneath it. Um, He then went back upstairs to continue searching but found nothing. That was also around 7 a.m. Also, he closed the window back which is, like, really weird. Why would you close the window that was not previously open after your daughter has been missing? Like, why would you touch it? Wouldn't you call the police down there and be like, hey, there's a window open, come search it for fingerprints or whatever? I don't know. Anyway, it was between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. that the police began preparing for the phone call that was described in the ransom note. Um, At some point, the two women who are victims advocates started cleaning the kitchen. And actually used a spray cleaner to wipe down the counter, which effectively destroyed any possible evidence on the counter and in the kitchen as a whole, which is presumably where the note was written, because that's where it was found. Um, And considering that's where it was left, and that's where the materials used to write the note were. It's so weird. So the police finally took the ransom note as evidence around 8.21 a.m., and they also tapped the Ramseys' phones around this time. Um, And then around 9.30, John Ramsey spoke to his banker to arrange for the 118,000 to be available to him in cash. And then the time came to wait for the phone call. So the ransom note described a phone call that would take place between 8 and 10 a.m., but 10 a.m. came and went, and the phone never rang. And witnesses say that John and Patsy had almost no reaction to that whatsoever, which seemed strange to them. Um, if you were a parent whose child has been kidnapped and you were waiting for a phone call from their kidnappers at like a specific time, but the call never came, wouldn't you be freaking out? But the Ramseys seemed to not even notice. Then, like I said before, the police finally taped off John JonBenet's room at 1030, but still not the rest of the house. After that, everyone other than Detective Lisa Arndt and the friends and family of the Ramseys left. So basically just the other police officers and the victim advocates left. And then up until 1 p.m., not much else happened. Everyone was just kind of anxiously wandering around, waiting for something to happen. Apparently, John Ramsey, de- apparently John Ramsey left to check the mail during this time, which is weird. Um, and then Detective Arnt noticed that John seemed kind of restless, which is understandable considering his daughter is missing. And she told Fleet White to go with John to search the house, top to bottom, to, quote, give him something to do and occupy his mind, which is so irresponsible because what if, like, he they shouldn't have searched the house in the first place, because what if they did find something and tampered with it? Like the window, for example then if there's anything on it, like any evidence on it, it's pretty much useless because it's been tampered with. It's been contaminated. Like there's, ugh, so irresponsible. But despite this, Fleet and John started searching the house again, starting in the basement. So starting bottom to top rather than top to bottom, I guess. According to Fleet, John walked right up to the wine cellar that had been previously searched by Fleet and overlooked by the police and opened the door, turned on the light, and there, on the ground, in the middle of the room, was John Bonnet's body, with duct tape on her mouth, a garrote around her neck, nylon cords around her wrist, and a Barbie nightgown shoved into the blanket with her. John screamed, oh my god, my baby, ripped the duct tape off of her mouth, which makes sense because if I was a parent, I would probably do the same, but him doing that completely destroyed any possible evidence that could have been on the tape. Um, he then picked up her body... Carried her upstairs screaming and put her down on the floor. Then, for some reason, Detective Arndt picked her up again and placed her body in the living room in front of the family Christmas tree, which is so dark and so fucked up. Upon seeing John Benet's body, Patsy ran up and just collapsed on top of her, just screaming, My angel, over and over again. And also, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Please raise my baby, which is just heartbreaking. Some would say it sounded a little too perfect and rehearsed, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. At this point, Detective Arndt was already calling for backup, obviously, and the officers arrived shortly after. Um, The officers searched the basement for more evidence, and one of them finally decided that maybe it was a good idea to secure the house as a crime scene. (laughs) What a thought. Who would have thought? Not me. About 20 minutes after John JonBenet's body was found, John Ramsey was heard on a phone call with his personal pilot trying to make arrangements to fly to Atlanta, where one of his adult children from his previous marriage was living at the time. Which is weird, because his son was already on a plane to Boulder when he heard what was going on, and the officers literally had to tell him, You can't leave. Your daughter's body was just found inside your house. This is now an ongoing murder investigation. As if that wasn't obvious... I don't know, it's so weird. Since this has obviously turned into a murder investigation and since 99% of the time when a child is found dead in their home, it's usually the family. Uh, So the police started asking John and Patsy some questions and Patsy said that the clothes John JonBenet was wearing weren't the same clothes that she'd put her to bed in. She was found wearing like a t-shirt and like leggings, but wore the Barbie nightgown that was found with her body to bed the night before. So whoever did this dressed her in different clothes, which is very strange. The police then had each of the Ramseys, including their uh, 10-year-old son, Burke, provide handwriting, blood, and hair samples for cross-examination, even though it was basically pointless now because so much of the evidence had already been destroyed. Um, And then John and Patsy had a preliminary interview for over two hours, which they were not split up for huge mistake on boulder pd for that one why would you interview two potential suspects of a murder case at the same time like in the same room why would you do that but anyway burke wasn't interviewed until a few weeks following the murder presumably because he was a child and the ramses claimed that burke had been asleep through the whole night and was at the white's house when the body was found but who knows why they waited so long um, and speaking of Burke, when searching the house, the police found a bowl of pineapple with a spoon sitting in it on the dining room table, which had both Burke and Patsy's fingerprints on it. But the Ramseys claim that they never gave Burke that pineapple and that he was asleep for the whole night. This pineapple is important, though, and we'll get, at, we'll get into that in a second. John Bonet's body was found at 1 p.m. The Ramseys left to stay at the Fernies' house around 1.45 p.m. A pathologist did not arrive to examine the body until 8 p.m., a whole seven hours after the body was found. But when he got there, he examined the body for about 30 minutes and noticed that JonBenet's body had already started showing signs of decomposition. Uh, Yikes. And according to the autopsy report, he found a ligature around the neck, a ligature around the right wrist. And he also noted that there was a small area of abrasion or contusion below the right ear, on the lateral aspect of the right cheek. A prominent abrasion was also present on the lower neck. So, that's pretty brutal. But after the pathologist left at about 8.30, JonBenet's body was not picked up from the home until 10.45 p.m. Um and again her body was found at 1 p.m. that day and it was not picked up until 10:45 p.m. An official autopsy was then performed the next morning on December 27th and they were able to determine that John Binet was killed via strangulation and a skull uh, skull fracture and the official cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma which say that five times fast and although there were no signs of like conventional rape sexual assault was not ruled out because there was actually evidence of sexual abuse and i'm sorry this part's gonna get really brutal but there were signs of vaginal injury and at the time of the autopsy it appeared that her genitals had been wiped with a cloth and a small spot of blood was found in her underwear as well. Again, this is a six-year-old girl, and I know this is really brutal, and I'm really sorry, but, like, it's really important that we talk about all of the details because they're very, very important in this case. Um, They did find DNA on her underwear, but they traced it back to just one of the workers in another country who worked in the factory where the underwear was made, so they pretty quickly rolled that out. They also found partially digested pineapple in her stomach during the autopsy, which means she had to have eaten it very soon before her death. Remember that bowl of pineapple that the cops found with Patsy and Burke's fingerprints on it that the family insisted they didn't know anything about and denied giving to either of their children that night? Why would she have a single piece of pineapple in her system that's, like, partially digested? That doesn't make any sense. Also, remember that suitcase that was found in front of the basement window? Well, when the cops opened it, they discovered a pillowcase and a comforter, and the fibers on the comforter matched some of the fibers that were found on John JonBenet's body which leads some to believe that whoever killed JonBenet may have tried to put her in the suitcase to get her either in or out of the house. I should say that the day after the autopsy was performed was the day that I was literally born, December 28th, 1996. So yeah, (laughs) really fun fact there. But let's jump forward a little bit to December 31st, the day of JonBenet's funeral. They buried that little girl in a pageant gown and a sparkly tiara even in death she could not escape from that shit and something that many people find strange is that the Ramses put the day of death on JonBenet's headstone as December 25th 1996 rather than the 26th when her body was found Um, the autopsy did show that she was likely she died closer to like the 10 p.m. like 9 p.m. 10 p.m time on December 25th when she allegedly fell asleep but it her body was found on the 26th so I guess a lot of people think that's weird and suspicious and think that it indicates that the Ramseys were involved in the death of John JonBenet because it implies that they knew she was already dead on the 25th so By the time of the funeral, this case had become a national story. The murder of John JonBenet Ramsey was the first murder that Boulder had had that whole year. And because it was a powerful family and the, quote, perfect victim of a young pageant girl taken away too early under suspicious and very unusual circumstances, it obviously attracted the attention of media and people all over the country. So on January 1st, 1997, the day after their daughter was buried... The Ramseys went on CNN in Atlanta to discuss everything that happened and to warn parents to, quote, keep your babies close to you. There's a murderer out there. Between the interview on January 1st to May 1st, the case blew up even more. Patsy was asked to submit four different handwriting samples. The Ramseys hired a private investigator to look into the case. Um, A website was made about the case. And the Ramseys offered a reward of $100,000 to anyone who knew something that could help them solve the case. And pretty much every other day, there was another press release with updates about the case. Um, And because it had become such big news, it sparked numerous amounts of conspiracy theories about what happened, with most people thinking that the Ramseys were responsible for Jean Benet's death in one way or another, and staged a kidnapping scenario to throw the police off. And because of this, the Ramses went on TV yet again to deny any and all claims that they had anything to do with John JonBenet's death. So what do you think? Do you think the Ramses staged a kidnapping to cover up their daughter's murder? Or did someone break in, murder John JonBenet, and somehow get away with it? Or something in between? Um, we'll talk about the suspects, the theories, and the aftermath in part two of the JonBenet-Ramsey case. So as for right now... You can keep up with my show on Twitter at Deviance Podcast, on Instagram at Deviance Podcast, and on Facebook at Deviance, a true crime podcast. Thank you so much for listening and stay safe out there. Bye.